sponsored by Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukma. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today on By Any Means Necessary, we'll be discussing a recent military setbacks on the part of Russia as it pertains to the war in Ukraine and what that's going to mean moving forward. Also going to be touching on a renewed conflicts between Azerbaijan and Armenia as connected to the broader issue of Russia. And it's Tuesday, which means we're having our weekly segment, Tech for the People. And as always, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we'll be taking your calls. But before we can move on, Jackie, tell them what's on your mind. Well, I've been away dealing with kidney issues and in a complete fugue state because of that chaos for the past few weeks. So I'm not quite sure what day it is, but I know the queen is dead. I know that's news that's a few days old, but man, has it been weird watching people mourn the woman who ruled a kingdom that did not one thing for them, at least in this country, and honestly hasn't done much good for anybody else around the world either. Thankfully, some of the folks around the world who have a more direct and honest relationship with the monarchy have kept it 100. Like Argentinian television host Santiago Cueno, who drank a glass of champagne live on the air to celebrate the passing of Queen Elizabeth II, saying, quote, She's done for good. Loud applause for Satan, who has finally taken her. See, the U.K. is not a favorite among the Argentines, especially after the Malvina Islands War in 1982, or you might know that as the Falcon Islands War. Neither is she a favorite of many people around the world who live in the former British colonies. See, when Elizabeth took the throne in 1952, more than a quarter of the world's population, the entire world's population, was under British imperial power. That was more than 700 million people, including in parts of Africa, Asia, the Middle East, and the Pacific Islands. And while some folks are saying, hey, look at all the countries that gained their independence under the queen, as if she gave it to them out of the kindness of her imperialist heart and they didn't fight the crown for their freedom, it's what people fought the crown for independence from that should never be forgotten. The brutality of British colonialism. The slavery, the exploitation, the massacres committed by British forces against those people fighting for their independence from their colonial masters. Was Lizzie on the throne for all of that? No, but she was for some. And she sure loved to show off the spoils of colonialism and all that jewelry, like the Kohinoor diamond from India and the great star of Africa. A user on Twitter commented on the event of the Queen's departure from this mortal coil, saying, So when will those colonizers give us back that Kohinoor diamond they took from us? Another wrote, Britain should return the great star of Africa back to Africa, in South Africa, where it belongs, or they will be forever thieves. They're talking about the Kulinan diamond that was discovered in what is now South Africa and was the largest uncut diamond ever found at 3,106 carats, which is a little more than one pound. The Great Star of Africa sits in the Queen's scepter. Now I guess it'll be the King's scepter, while another stone known as the Kulinan II or Second Star of Africa is set in the front band of the Imperial State Crown. The stones that make up the Kulinan diamond are valued at a total of $2 billion. 
But let's be real here. I don't think the status of the royals as thieves is going to change because Charles Chunky Fingers is not giving any of that loot back. He looks pretty excited to wear those crown jewels that his four cousins stole from black and brown people in his family's long history of colonization, subjugation, exploitation, and yes, theft, theft, lots of theft. It would have been great, great if someone, anyone, had shown up at the official state funeral of the queen and made a spectacle demanding that the queen owes folks money and who's going to pay now that she's dead. But alas, that didn't happen. That doesn't mean the demand to pay the crown's debts to the people should not continue to be raised, though. Interestingly enough, yesterday was the birth date of the great Amilcar Cabral, Cabral was one of Africa's foremost anti-colonial leaders, considered an assimilado or a colonized African who was sufficiently, quote unquote, civilized to be assimilated into Portuguese society. Cabral went to university in Portugal and studied agronomy. That's right, the science of soil management and crop production. He produced a landmark agricultural census in 1953 that showed how export crops were grown and harvested without major technological investment or displacement of people, but the requirement imposed on the peasants who farmed those crops to pay taxes to Portugal in cash endangered their food security. The expansion of peanut farming, which eroded soil and growing most of the rice for export rather than for the indigenous population's consumption, which all led to poverty and sometimes famine among the peasant farmers, were also concerns that Cabral raised. It was largely this exposure to the colonial exploitation of peasant indigenous people that led Cabral to give up agronomy and dedicate himself to the struggle for liberation against colonial Portugal. So he founded the African Party for the Independence of Guinea-Bissau and Cape Verde, the PAIGC, in 1956, to achieve independence for the two Portuguese colonies through peaceful means of protest at first, until the Portuguese responded like colonizers do to a dock worker strike with violence, killing and wounding numerous demonstrators. It was the unrelenting violence of the Portuguese that caused Cabral to abandon a peaceful, approach, a peaceful approach to liberation and to take up arms against the oppressors. And in walking away from his upper crust bona fides that gave him the same rights as citizens of Portugal, Cabral was the model for his ideology of class suicide, sacrificing his privileged position to identify and struggle with oppressed and colonized people for liberation. Cabral led 10,000 members of the PAIGC in a 10-year war against 35,000 Portuguese troops and mercenaries that came to be known as Portugal's Vietnam. And although Cabral was assassinated by Portuguese agents and some turncoat members of his own party on January 20th, 1973, not only would his struggle for independence for Guinea-Bissau and Cape Verde be realized after his death, but his example and ideals even inspired his former enemies in the Portuguese army to take up their own liberation struggle against the fascist dictatorship in Portugal, and it all ultimately led to the collapse of the Portuguese empire in Africa. Cabral said, quote, it is not only with gunfire that one frees the land. 
it is not only military or political work that frees the land. The greatest battle we must engage in is against ignorance. Only when men and women understand this can they lose their fear. Long live Amilcar Cabral and the example he gave us to free ourselves from ignorance and to fight for our liberation. Follow Lukeman Nation on Patreon.com slash Nation for lots of great content. And those are today's talking points. And you are listening to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we're your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movement shaping the world around us. By any means necessary. And we're going to keep the movement moving on as they say. We're now happy to be joined by international affairs and security analyst Mark Sloboda. Mark, thanks so much for joining us. Sean, Jackie, thanks for having me. It's always an honor and a pleasure to be on by any means necessary. Well, the pleasure is all ours, Mark. And there's been some, uh, I think, uh, very consequential developments as it pertains to the ongoing war in Ukraine. And we've seen a Ukrainian forces uh, launch basically two major counteroffensives here in recent weeks in, you know, a move that's seen as a pretty considerable uh, kind of a military collapse of sorts of uh, uh, Russian forces, which have been sort of slowly making gains in the time uh, uh, since the onset of the conflict. And, you know, some uh, uh, corners or some elements are, are sort of, you know, celebrating this as a kind of uh, evidence of a decisive military defeat for Russia. Others think that perhaps uh, uh, Russian forces may simply be me regrouping for another thrust. I was hoping you could sort of help us understand just what happened in these counteroffensives and what do you think it means uh, uh, within the sort of broader context of this war. Okay. So uh, since the start of this conflict, Russia has limited the amount of its uh, intervention forces, what it calls a special military operation, and that has legal significance in Russia, to just 150,000 troops, right? Um, That is buttressed by some 40 to 50,000 East Ukrainians from the Donbass who are fighting alongside Russian forces against the regime. So uh, for the last few months, after some initial large gains in the south and the north, Russia has been concentrating their military efforts in the east, clearing out the entirety, liberating uh, the Donbass. They have completed um, Lugansk, and they are now focused on these last uh, Kiev regime defensive lines, heavy steel and concrete fortifications in tight urban agglomerated areas with defenses and trenches in layers upon layers, uh, factories all over the area that were built during the Soviet Union, like fortresses with uh, you know nuclear-proof bunkers and, and so forth. And they have been slowly, methodically grinding through them, mostly from uh, using the strategy of their heavy artillery and rocket advantage to pound an area for weeks, basically, until there's nothing left moving much and moving in, a strategy that minimizes casualties on a very restricted uh, military force. Um, And uh, while this has been going on, uh, Kiev has been losing ground slowly but steadily in the east, 
in in this these defensive area. But um, they have not been siddling, twiddling their thumbs this whole time. They have mobilized, i.e. conscripted the entire country. Men between the ages of 16 and 60 are not allowed to leave the country. And they've actually raised the conscription age recently to 70, right? A lot of volunteers, but a lot of forced conscripts too. They claim that they have now mobilized uh, and at least partially trained up a million-man army. That is almost surely an exaggeration. It's probably more something around 600,000, but that's still really significant, right? And this has been aided over the last few months by a steady supply of Western arms and not the, the token, you know, propaganda value, high Mars and stuff, but far more importantly, like 230 tanks from Poland, uh, refurbished, T modernized T-72s, that uh, the Kiev regime knows how to uh, operate and uh, repair uh, and so forth, uh, and an uh, equal number of infantry fighting vehicles as well as uh, you know regular artillery like the M777s and the like. That they have managed to build up a a substantial counter in, uh, offensive force, which they are now deployed, and they're deploying it uh, on a strategy cooked up and we this is openly be ad admitted it was war gamed and planned out by the pentagon cnn is is loudly crowing about this the the strategy is to combat the russian what they call fires heavy battalion tactical group i.e a relatively small formation that has very high firepower with tanks um uh artillery rocket systems its own air defenses and electronic warfare and the like but the big disadvantage is manpower and that's what the the, the uh, new pentagon kiev strategy focuses on kiev's manpower advantage over Russia's manpower disadvantage to try to compensate for the fire's mismatch. And so what it involves is attacking with large numbers of mobile um, diversion reconnaissance groups and mechanized infantry across broad fronts on multiple axes at the same time or, or in quick succession so that Russian fires have to run around um, exhausting themselves, trying to put out fires everywhere, right? Aviation, artillery, rocket systems, and the like, to try to, you know, supplement the relatively small defensive forces, the garrisons that Russia has across these broad fronts. Um, in Kherson, this the first big counteroffensive. It failed. It's ground out. It stalled very quickly because Russia had prepared defenses. They had amassed their artillery and aviation reserves, and it cost incredible casualties to Kiev. We're talking in the tens of thousands when you're talking about KIA and, and, and wounded. Um, and the Washington Post has openly admitted this. Um, however, there was an offensive to be launched in the north, the Kremlin could clearly see, and also a coming counteroffensive that has not been launched yet, but we will see it in the next week or two, in the southeast from Ugladar towards Mariupol. And Russia, with their 150,000 limit, 
They simply couldn't defend all that territory by their own self-prescribed limitations, right? 150,000 out of a 1 million active duty military and 2 million reserves. But we're only going to use 150,000 of that. Why? It's a political decision, uh, partly maybe about the, some, maintaining high domestic political support, but also as a signal to NATO that their intentions are limited, that, that uh, they are always willing to go back to uh, peace negotiations on the terms that they set in the beginning of the intervention, and also to try thus hopefully to prevent a direct NATO military incursion into West Ukraine. Uh, you can say whether that's right or wrong. I think it's wrong, but they have limited. So they could not defend the north, the south, and the southeast all at the same time. They chose to sacrifice the north and defend the south and the southeast. So quietly, we now know about a week ago, a little over a week ago, um, Russian forces quietly began to leave Kharkov. Um, and they left only a token stay-behind force of just over a thousand forces spread out over a number of towns and villages to facilitate last-minute evacuations. Now, the cost here is to the, the people of Kharkov. They were sacrificed because the Kiev regime is now hunting collaborators, uh, what the State Bureau of Investigations has termed the time of reckoning has come. And the neo-Nazi battalions, um, Kraken, Azov, are going and they're rooting out anyone who showed Russian sympathies, Russian collaboration, which by the, the Kiev regime's own new laws includes anyone who accepted humilitarian, humanitarian aid from Russia. Right. You accept food or medical aid. You're a collaborator. And um, the best they can hope for is 15 years in prison. But we all know it's more likely that they will be shot in the back of the head quietly by Kraken and then have deaths blamed on uh, leaving evacuating Russian forces. So when Kiev went into the north over the weekend, there was practically no Russian forces left. A few stayed behind forces, which fought some rearguard holding actions to facilitate some far too hurried last-minute civilian evacuations, and there were large convoys of cars desperately trying to get into Russia, uh, across the border into Belgorod or into Don, uh, into um, Donbass region. Um, and a, a lot of people are going to pay the price for this strategic decision by the Kremlin, and that has political costs in Ukraine moving forward. But now the big race is on to because uh, Russia has sent their reserves and the forces from there instead to the southeast. And that is also where the Kiev regime is hurriedly assembling forces and a much bigger counteroffensive and perhaps more decisive is still very likely to occur in the southeast from the Ugladar to Mariupol direction in the coming days. And, you know, Mark, 
it, it seems that the Pentagon, at least they're acting pretty surprised that Ukraine was able to move so quickly and, uh, you know, make the gains or re- regain the territory they have uh, as top Western defense officials were informed in advance that Ukraine was planning a top uh, or a two-front counteroffensive to retake territory captured by Russia. I don't think they were surprised by that at all. No, they but, war-gamed it. <laughs> <laughs> but, I, I do, but do you think, Mark, that, that what U.S. officials may be surprised about is Russia's response, the, the fact that they yes. did withdraw? Yes, right? So I think at least a part of maybe a significant goal of the northern counteroffensive into Kharkov was to tie up the Russian intervention forces reserves so that they could not be utilized in this coming southeast offensive, um, which may be more vital, may, may be more decisive strategically. And they were expecting that. And Russia has not done that. So they have instead much more defensive forces capable to confront that counteroffensive. And now there remains a decision hanging in the air. Uh, the Kiev forces have already removed their defensive mine networks. They began removing them a couple days ago in front of Ugladar. Uh, so will they go through with this southeast uh, counteroffensive? Will they perhaps swing it around towards Zaporozhye? But they have a large con- troop concentration in the southeast, and Russia is assembling forces there as well. And I expect some kind of battle in the southeast, whether that's towards Mariupol or towards Zaporozhye, remains to be seen. But I, I, I can't imagine that nothing is going to happen there after all of this maneuvering. And Russia Russia was outmaneuvered here, right? This they have come up with an effective strategy for Kiev to use massed, you know, rapidly moving uh, manpower, infantry, mechanized infantry, and so forth. Now that comes at a very high cost. The high cost is you are feeding your troops as cannon fodder to Russia's overwhelming superiority in aviation, artillery, and rocket systems. And they have suffered horrific casualties as a result, whereas the Russian military that it withdrew uh, in good order from Kharkov sustained very light casualties, right? So, I mean, if if territory is the most important thing, then Ukraine, the Kiev regime definitely comes out ahead. If it is attrition of each other's militaries, then Russia comes out ahead. If it's strategic maneuver and the coming battle in the southeast, we don't know yet because it's undecided. It could yet go either way. Definitely. We're going to move to a quick break on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By any means necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. 
And we continue to be joined here by Mark Sloboda. And Mark, I wanted to switch gears a little bit, although I think there still may be some implications for uh, Russia as it pertains to this issue. And that's this uh, uh, latest clash between Armenian and Azerbaijani troops uh, that are being uh, uh, reported. And I believe this is centered around uh, a disputed territory of Nagorno-Karabakh. And I seem to remember this being uh, quite a hot issue issue a couple of years ago. And uh, so what's going on with these uh, uh, sort of renewed um, or perhaps uh, uh, reignited of what uh, tends to be long simmering uh, tensions between Armenia and Azerbaijan here, Mark? Yeah. Okay. So in the last conflict, you know, just uh, over a year ago, we saw a, um, a uh, uh, our Azerbaijani military uh, vastly increased in power and with a Turkish assistance, take back a large number of occupied territories that Armenia had held since the last conflict in the 1990s. They also pressed very heavily on the Gorno-Karabakh. Eventually, a ceasefire broke brokered by Russia, an uneasy ceasefire, was reached in very politically damaging terms uh, to the Armenian government. Um, and it has been in a you know uneasy frozen conflict ever since, with occasional outbreaks of violence, mostly instigated by uh, Azerbaijan, who feels that Armenia is dragging their heels on these politically difficult publicly unpopular measures that they had to agree to, including a transport corridor across Armenia, southern Armenia, connecting the two parts of Azerbaijan, and um, concessions, uh, transport concessions to Nagorno-Karabakh. Um, and um, Azerbaijan has taken advantage of that uh, with you know, taking a settlement here, taking a settlement there, artillery shelling here. And we've seen uh, a, a big outbreak of violence, of shelling on both sides, but it seems to, you know, most likely have been initiated by Azerbaijan. Um, and I think that they definitely, rightly or wrongly, sense some Russian weakness because of events over the weekend in Ukraine. And uh, they certainly have Turkish assistance again. Turkey just finished up the war games in Azerbaijan. So they very likely perhaps even planned this out before this, and it's just fortuitous timing. Uh, but they have initiated artillery shelling, not of Nagorno-Karabakh, but of mainland Armenia. And that's where uh, they've had to evacuate several villages, and Armenia is already reporting 50 dead. Russia does not want a second front war at this point. They would have to defend Armenia according to the terms of their alliance under the Collective Security Treaty Organization organization if it was acknowledged that full-scale conflict has broken out. So they will be attempting by any means necessary to force Azerbaijan to return to the terms of the ceasefire and the frozen conflict, even if that means telling Armenia to shut up 
and to more quickly fulfill the concessions that they agreed to. And I think Azerbaijan is is enjoying their leverage in this situation. They've done it several times before. You want to call it advanced diplomacy by military force, um, and they may get a few more concessions out of this. However, I think it is unlikely that we will see a full-scale return to hostilities. But we may see things simmering for a few days, and a few more concessions granted to Azerbaijan. Yeah, what are the the major concerns for uh, these two countries that, you know, Russia is, uh, since they're agreeing to joint steps to stabilize the border, um, you know, what could Azerbaijan uh, uh, benefit the most from Russia's really, as you said, Mark, inability to fight uh, another war on another front? Yeah, um, I don't think it's necessarily an inability. It's simply they don't want to. Russia does have a million-man army, and they're only using 150,000 right. in Ukraine. So, uh, but they certainly don't want to, and they don't want to go to ruin what relations they have with Azerbaijan and exacerbate relations with an always quixotic Turkey under Erdogan. So, um, what? Um, Azerbaijan, there's still the big bleeding wound of Nagorno-Karabakh, which is this ethnic Armenian, you know, uh, self-governed enclave within Azerbaijani borders since, uh, you know, even predating the 1990s. Um, There's a lot of sentiment, popular, very popular nationalist sentiment in Azerbaijan to take it uh, to take it under their control and perhaps to drive all the Armenians out, uh, ethnic cleansing. But the government in Azerbaijan is pretty canny. They know that that would not be acceptable to the West. So instead, instead they're hoping to basically just chip away at the edges, chip away at its you know, um, uh, political status uh, and trying to force uh, Armenia into accepting that Nagorno-Karabakh is part of Azerbaijan, perhaps under some extremely limited form of autonomy. And I think that's what they're really. But there's also the issue of border delimitation. Uh, There is no firm borders agreed to on where, you know, Azerbaijan ends and when Armenia begins, uh, as was supposed to be fixed by the ceasefire, Armenia still hasn't agreed to it. And Azerbaijan is constantly still probing, again, taking a village here, a settlement here, that then de facto becomes part of Azerbaijan. And I think it is actually very much, however politically difficult it might be in Armenia, to agree to that delimitation now before they lose any more, you know, death by inches to Azerbaijan. Yeah. And, you know, uh, I can't help but wonder how, you know, what we're seeing. I mean, because like you say, this uh, definitely appears to be a ripple effect from uh, what we've seen this this weekend as it pertains to Ukraine and Russia. And so how do you see this uh, uh, this sort of renewal of conflict between Azerbaijan and Armenia sort of factoring into the broader calculus of the region? I mean, it feels like there really there may not be like a corner of geopolitics that isn't somehow uh, touched or impacted by uh, 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 the war in Ukraine in some form or fashion. But how do you situate uh, uh, Armenia and Azerbaijan sort of in uh, of that broader dynamic there. 
Well, Armenia is allied with Russia in the Collective Security Treaty Organization, whereas Azerbaijan is very closely uh, linked with Turkey. Um, those are the uh, alliances you know, that exist. And Russia and Turkey have a very uneasy relationship where they are conducting hostilities together in Syria, in Libya, and in Armenia, Azerbaijan, while maintaining trade and relations in other respects. It's a very complicated geopolitical waltz with daggers poised at each other's back. Uh, so it's fraught with a lot of diplomatic tension. Basically, how to make concessions that will uh, basically placate um, um, Baku and Ankara right now um, without giving away too much. But there are also bigger political implications because certainly uh, there's a lot of parallels here for Taiwan because the U.S. is very much preparing to do the exact same thing with Taiwan to China that they uh, have begun provoking uh, Russia, uh, you know, with Ukraine after the flipping of the government in 2014 there. Uh, so um, there's a lot of people looking at what is happening in this conflict. If Russia wins, it's going to be seen as a huge defeat for NATO um, and, and perhaps very discouraging towards Taiwan. Whereas if Russia loses or does not at least meet the terms that they originally set out for themselves, if they are perceived as losing in the long term, um, that is going to, you know, uh, possibly you know, the jackals on Russia's border will sense a little bit of blood. And that's I think that's at least a little of what is going on with Azerbaijan right now. It could get worse moving forward or, you know, it could go the other way. The outcome is yet uncertain, but it certainly will have big geopolitical ripples, not only throughout Eurasia, but probably throughout the whole world. Yeah, in the last few minutes, uh, Mark, there was something that I wanted to ask about more directly as it pertains to Russia and Ukraine, because I feel like there have there have been some, you know, not perhaps in the mainstream media, but there have been some that have been noting uh, the relative restraint with which uh, Russia has been sort of carrying through its operation here or, or its military maneuvers. And I'm wondering, well, number one, I mean, do you agree with that? And if that's true, you know, why do you think that is? And do you think that may change uh, given these most recent developments. Yeah, uh, absolutely. It is true, right? Like, what is the first thing that the U.S. does when they go into a military conflict like Iraq? They bomb out the electricity supply. They bomb, bomb out the water. They use bomb out anything that can be used, is used in any conceivable way, blow up all the bridges, blow up all the railway stations, you know, preventing any type of, of you know, resistance. Uh, Russia hasn't done that. Uh, in part as a signal to NATO about the you know their limited objectives, uh, uh, hoping to prevent a NATO incursion uh, into West Ukraine, but also because they believe they are at war with um, the regime in Kiev, not the Ukrainian people. So they've tried as much as possible, and there's always collateral damage to uh, you know not increase the Ukrainian people's suffering. But over uh, just at the end of the weekend, we saw Russia launch strategic bombers 
blowing up electricity supplies in large parts of um, East Ukraine. Um, uh, which brought down, you know, uh, which brought down power over large parts of uh, the country. Um, this was actually done in response, direct response, uh, very not reported in the Western media at all, to Kiev regime attacking the electricity supply in Donetsk and also in Russia, in the Belgorod region, uh, bordering Kharkov, where last week Bellingcat was actually gloating about how Kiev had brought down half of the electricity, the, the, the electricity supply to half of a Russian region. Uh, and also the continuing attacks that forced the shutdown of the Zaporozhia nuclear power plant. So part of it was reprisal for that. Another part of it was both, again, both sides are rushing troops to the southeast. A large of this is done by train networks. And in Ukraine, the trains are powered by electricity. So by taking out the electricity supply, even for a day or two, Russia gained a lot of crucial hours uh, that Kiev couldn't you know, mobilize troops, tanks, and so forth to the southeast, and which is a race right now for a looming big battle down there. Now, is this something that's going to continue moving forward? Is Russia re? There's political talk at home that they're going to reclassify the special military operation. There's big public sentiment. There's a lot of hawkish sentiment right now to do that. We don't know yet, but it is very possible, and we could very potentially see a lot more like this going into the future. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Mark, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here of Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And it's Tuesday, which means we're having our weekly segment, Tech for the People, where we're joined by technologist Chris Garafa, the co-host of the Covert Action Bulletin podcast. Chris, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, great to be back. Thanks, Sean. Absolutely. And Chris, uh, Bloomberg reported that uh, Google, of course, a tech giant company, paid really quite large sums in order to maintain its dominance uh, as a search engine. And I was hoping you could help us understand uh, just what that means, because I think it sort of helps expose kind of the reality of the dynamic between, you know, the major profits made from these tech companies and what people are literally able to see, because I think a lot of people still seem to think that if they use a search engine, whether it's uh, Google or Yahoo or DuckDuckGo or something, that it's somehow uh, uh, a neutral sort of thing to happen. But there's actually quite a bit that happens there. So, so what's going on with this issue of uh, Google? Yeah, certainly. I mean, when you when you open up your web browser and you go to search for something, it's not, you know, just by chance that it probably opens up Google. You pick up a, a new device, you know, Mac, PC, iPhone, Android phone, whatever it is. 
and you search something and it goes through a Google search. Google has done a lot of work and most of that, you know, financial work to make sure that that is what happens. Uh, depending on, you know, almost doesn't matter what web browser you're using, what kind of device you're on. Of course, Google makes its own Android phones. It resells you know, or licenses Android operating system to others uh, like Samsung and so many more. But, you know, on an iPhone, on a Mac computer, in the Safari browser, uh, in Firefox, you know, many, many other Browsers and devices will default to a Google search. And this is because Google spends billions and billions of dollars on these, what they call partnerships. So they pay Apple, they pay Samsung, they pay Mozilla, the organization that supports the development of Firefox. Uh, and that's how, that's how it ends up, that your search is probably going through Google until you go and manually change it, if you even decide to do that. And most people we know don't change that. We know that Google has, you know, an absolute dominance in search. Uh, and so there is a, an antitrust suit uh, that is going against Google. It's going to be held uh, soon, but we're getting a little more information about it now. Uh, they say that Kenneth Dinser, who's an attorney for the Department of Justice, you know, didn't say how much exactly Google spending, but his quote is, it's enormous numbers. Uh, and so, you know, we're going to be seeing this suit, and I think we'll, we'll find out a little more about these deals as it goes on, as there is more done in terms of uh, investigation and, uh, and announcements in the course of the investigation and the suit itself. But you're right, because when we look at, when we, you know, we often get our information through a search, right? If you're not just going to Facebook or whatever website you're going to, you're trying to find something, you're going to go through a search engine. And if that search engine is blocking or downgrading in its results, the information that could be the most relevant or most interesting or enlightening for what you're looking for, then that's having a very serious effect on the kind of information that we can find. So, of course, we know that you're not going to find, for example, Sputnik or RT in Google News, right? They're not going to be showing up there. Just as we know that, uh, you know, on Twitter, for example, if you search for certain hashtags, they're not going to show up or certain accounts are going to be labeled as, you know, state affiliated media. But also just the way that these companies go about, and in particular, going back to Google, you know, they highlight what they believe is trustworthy. And again, this is a, in a company deciding what it believes is trustworthy. There is nothing necessarily about Google itself, about its parent company, Alphabet, or about its executives and those making these decisions that has anyone, you know, no one has voted them the trust makers. We, we haven't said, you know, we trust Google to decide what we should trust. Um, but they have taken that by, they've taken that position by spending billions of dollars to be the default search engine uh, on all of these devices. Yeah, definitely. And speaking of Google, there was actually a really interesting um, intervention that some of the uh, uh, workers at Google were making. I mean, they recently planned a day of action of protest against uh, uh, Google's uh, uh, somewhat secretive program called uh, Project Nimbus. This is a $1.2 billion program, which is designed to provide uh, uh, advanced artificial intelligence technology to the military and government of 
Israel uh, and uh, some of the workers having spoken out about this and, you know, with the slogan being no tech for apartheid. And so somebody can explain what's going on with this effort uh, amongst Google workers, Chris, because, you know, I feel like it just shows a, a sort of really an important interplay and interconnectivity between uh, uh, tech and uh, organizing here. Yeah, there was this really uh, immense day of protest last Thursday, the 8th, uh, where Google workers protested at Google buildings in Durham, North Carolina, as well as Seattle, New York City, and San Francisco. And I'm so excited to see this, not just because it was Google employees, but also because Amazon employees joined these protests as well. Uh, and uh, pro-Palestine or Palestinian solidarity activists like Linda Sarsour also joined these protests and were featured at them. And this movement, the No Tech for Apartheid movement, is protesting Project Nimbus, which is a $1.2 billion contract between the state of Israel uh, and Google and Amazon to provide cloud services, AI, all the sorts of things that we know that these companies you know, often provide and sell to government agencies. Um, a worker at Google, uh, Ariel Corin, spoke about this and has been in- organizing internally about trying to raise awareness and really ultimately trying to shut down Project Nimbus for quite some time. Um, And she was actually forced to resign about a week and a half ago from Google. Uh, She says that they actually, you know, they've been aggressively pursuing these contracts and then retaliating against those internally who use Google provided ways of voicing concerns. So one of those ways is ERGs, employee research groups. Um, Corin is Jewish and started to speak in one of the Jewish ERG mailing lists about her concerns about Project Nimbus and the idea that Google would be selling, you know, its advanced uh, AI and other technologies to the Israeli government, which you know could use these technologies, obviously in the oppression of the Palestinian people. Uh, and Corin goes on to say that instead of being heard in this employee resource group, uh, she was basically shut out of it. They threatened to send her job to South America to transfer her, and ultimately, about a week and a half ago or so, she was forced to resign from the company. Uh, Tens of thousands of people, including nearly a thousand Google employees themselves, have spoken or signed a petition uh, calling on Google to reinstate her and uh, you know end all of the retaliation. But we're seeing, you know, all of these protests that have happened last week are also extremely significant, Uh, again, because it's Amazon employees, Google employees, labor organizers, and the Palestine Solidarity Movement here in the United States saying that, you know, this struggle is not just the struggle of Google or Amazon workers. It's not just a tech struggle. It's a human rights struggle to say that Google and Amazon and all of these big tech giants should not be providing the technology, the services, the platforms, the enabling uh, services behind them for the IDF to continue its occupation uh, against the Palestinians.
Yeah, and I feel like there's a couple of things at work here. I mean, number one, um, just this fact of retaliation for people who, you know, by all accounts, attempted to use the proper channels to to raise an issue and was punished for it, which I think sort of shows the value of this uh, relationship on the one hand. And I think it also raises um, the role of tech in repression. I mean, certainly we know that to uh, be the case with things like Project Nimbus, I believe before. Uh, on uh, Tech for the People, we've talked about um, uh, tech like Pegasus and things like that. And so you really can't separate um, this kind of uh, tech from sort of broader trends and dynamics that are happening uh, both within countries and around the world. And that includes uh, uh, Israeli apartheid. And so the fact that Google would uh, attack employees for raising the contradictions with this relationship, I just think uh, reveals a lot about those dynamics. You know what I mean? Yeah, it certainly does. I mean, ultimately, Google, Amazon, whichever company you want to look at, they, you know, are going to be in service to the empire. The empire, you know, part of that, of course, being, you know, Israel doing the work of the United States and Western capital uh, in the Middle East, you know, offering, uh, you know, sort of a bastion uh, against states like Iran, Syria and others where the United States may not directly want to get, you know, involved unless it absolutely has to. Uh, so it's, you know, we should be very clear about, you know, what the Israeli position is in the Middle East and what the work that it does for the United States. Uh, and of course, these companies also want to make some money. They want to, they want this $1.2 billion contract and they hope that they can renew it and grow it in the future. But on the other hand, again, we have these workers, we have the solidarity movements. We know that Google workers have already fought against Project Maven and they won. They said they weren't going to develop AI for the Pentagon, for the Department of Defense, and that contract was not renewed once they found out about it. Uh, we've seen labor at Amazon win, of course, you know, victory after victory, despite massive repression in their unionization efforts. And I think this is part of the larger trend of labor action in scenarios or places where we haven't traditionally seen labor. And tech is certainly one of those. And if we're just thinking about uh, office workers, technology employees and staff, you know, certainly we haven't seen a lot of organizing in those facilities, in those industries uh, until the last 10 years or so. So I think it's really significant and part of this growing trend. Yeah, definitely. Another thing I wanted to touch on today, Chris, was um, uh, this issue with the IRS, who reportedly uh, may be looking into setting up a kind of free e-filing system for people to do their taxes, I believe. Or what's happening here? Yeah. Do you know why we aren't able to just you know go online and do our, our taxes for free, even though the IRS knows exactly what we owe? It's because Intuit and H&R Block don't want us to be able to do so. Uh, that's the reason that there are, you know, these two companies, uh, Intuit being the one that mostly offers it online, H&R Block mostly in person. Uh, they, they lobby against the IRS making it any easier for us to file our taxes every year. But finally now, and this is, you know, something that has come out of recent legislation, and it's, a, it's some good news, um, the IRS is going to spend a few million dollars looking into the ability to do its own, uh, you know, its own free IRS tax filing system that is going to be, you know, I hopefully, hopefully I think this will be uh, a good step towards removing the monopoly that H&R Block and Intuit have on tax filing. I mean, it's ridiculous that 
the government can claims to know what we owe them. It'll audit you if, if it thinks you gave them the wrong amount. And yet we have to pay these private companies ridiculous amounts of money every single year uh, at the federal and state level in order just to file our taxes. Yeah. And see, I don't think a lot of people in the U.S. even really think about it like that, like the fact that everything down to the way we pay our taxes, which we, which we have to do under penalty of uh, legal recourse, right? But even that um, is sort of impacted by the interest of capital. And, and as you say, this corporate entity that somehow has been able to, uh, you know, more or less have a stranglehold on the way that this process goes. And it's pretty wild that um, that would be allowed to be the case as opposed to, I don't know, I mean, the government doing like what it appears to be doing now and finding a way for it to handle um, uh, uh, the taxes. You know what I mean? And so I I don't know. It just seems like uh, for something that is pretty mundane and very sort of regular activity uh, here in the U.S. I mean, the, the the idea that even that is put to the interest of capital, I think, says a lot um, about this uh, uh, system and just how deep, to be frank, I mean, just how complete the... Um, I don't know if control is the word that I'm looking for, but it might be accurate, like just how deeply interwoven these corporate entities have made themselves uh, in our lives. uh, And as such, it's to the point where, you know, we're like investing in these things and without necessarily even uh, realizing it. So it really seems that in a sense that monopoly in a way has almost been normalized in this sense, Chris. And the fact that uh, we see this, even with something as basic as paying taxes, I think is quite telling. Yeah, certainly. Look, I, I think that if the government is going to make you pay taxes, right, and that's just, as you said, it's the reality. We have to do it every year. Otherwise, you're going to get penalized. You could go to jail. Then the government should facilitate that process of doing so. It should not be uh, beholden to these other companies who are just making, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars a year in making the process as difficult as possible, as confusing, and then as expensive as possible. I mean, this is, this. it just makes perfect sense to get rid of that, the middleman, so to say. Um, now, is $15 million going to make this happen in the next year? No. But again, I am glad to see uh, as part, and this came out of the Inflation Reduction Act, by the way. And so, it was, you know, one thing I was glad to see come out of it. And I think what we can do is say, you got $15 million to do a study. Let's spend some more money and actually make it happen. Like, invest that money, make it happen. You know, we need a whole rethinking of the tax system. But in the meantime, at least make it you know less expensive for average working class people to get their taxes done. Yeah, definitely. In the last few minutes, Chris, I also wanted to touch on this issue about uh, Uber Eats seemingly uh, just massively canceling a lot of um, uh, uh, courier delivery people accounts, seemingly uh, particularly amongst uh, uh, immigrants. So what's going on with this? Yeah, I thought this was really interesting. This is happening particularly in France. Uh, A number of undocumented Uber Eats workers in France have found out over the past couple weeks that their accounts have been shut off, so they can't work. Now, we are seeing, of course, around the world, most countries opening up again. And so companies like Uber Eats are not uh, seeing as much business as they were during the height of the COVID pandemic, although we should say we are still in this pandemic. Um, It is dangerous work to be a gig economy driver, bike rider, however you're doing your deliveries. It's particularly dangerous when you're doing it during a pandemic. 
But now Uber is saying, yeah, we let you we let you on the platform to to work for us, to do work for us, to deliver food during a pandemic when we needed you. But now that we don't need you, we're just going to cut you off and say it's because you don't have, you know, documentation. You're not a legal resident of France and so on and so forth. And it really shows how these companies are treating Again, the necessary employees, right? The people who, first of all, made the world continue to run as much as possible during lockdowns, during shutdowns, but also, you know, how made them made these companies like Uber Eats billions of dollars in profit uh, as their services were more in demand when you couldn't go out to a grocery store or a restaurant uh, certainly as easily. So there's protests that are happening in France against Uber and, and specifically around the question of Uber Eats. Um, and we know that uh, French workers you know, often do show up in solidarity. Uh, and there has been a lot of cross labor stratification solidarity in these protests uh, particularly as we see that uh, people who are driving for Uber in cities like Paris and other French cities have also been affected by the rates, the lower pay rates that uh, Uber is now paying them uh, post-pandemic. Definitely. Well, we thank you so much, Chris, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there and move to a break here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By any means necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, we're here. We're back. Top of the hour. It is Tuesday, September 13th, 2022. And of course, in 20 minutes, you'll be able to give us a call by any means necessary to give us your thoughts, ideas, questions or concerns about anything you've heard on the show today. Anything at all relevant happening on this earth. We want to hear from you. But that's not the only way that folks can get in touch with us here on the show. And if you will, please, Jackie, let the folks know how they can holler at us. That's right, Sean. There are so many ways for our allies, accomplices, and comrades, that's y'all, to reach out and touch us at By Any Means Necessary here in Washington, D.C. You can do that at 3.20 p.m. Eastern Time by calling us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But you can also listen to our shows at SputnikNews.com slash radio. Click on the plus sign and type in By Any Means Necessary. You can also hear us on Sputnik.com. Mave, that's M-A-V-E dot digital. And you can listen live on your radio dial at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM in the Washington, D.C. area from 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern time each weekday. And we're streaming live for your viewing pleasure on Rumble right now at rumble.com slash C slash B-A-M necessary. The chat is live. And remember, friends, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern today, you you can call us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. But wherever you are in this world and however you do it, we want to hear from you. 
We most certainly do. We most certainly do. And uh, at the top of the hour here, it's being reported that uh, Twitter's shareholders have voted to approve a proposed $44 billion acquisition by Elon Musk. And I'm going to read directly from piece on The Verge that was covering this. It says, quote, Musk proposed a buyout of Twitter in April. Twitter has encouraged investors to accept it since then, even as Musk has filed numerous requests to terminate the agreement. Today's vote lets Twitter continue with the lawsuit intended to make Musk close the acquisition. The approval means that Musk and Twitter will proceed to an October trial in the Delaware Court of Chancery. Musk is set to argue that Twitter concealed important facts about its internal operations including an alleged undercount of spam and bot accounts on the platform, as well as details revealed by former Twitter security head Peter Mudge Zotko. Uh, Twitter will push to close the deal regardless, alleging that Musk's complaints are merely a pretext for backing out. So should be interesting to see what flows from this. But be that as it may, we're happy to be joined for the hour today by Ajamu Baraka, national organizer of the Black Alliance for Peace. Ajamu, thanks so much for joining us. Good to be here, and uh, hopefully we won't be interrupted. There's some people who are working, so hopefully we can get through this without uh, much interference. Absolutely. Well, we got work to do here as well, of course, Jamu, as we're happy to have you as always. And, you know, I think one of the main uh, uh, topics of discussion in the world of geopolitics right now, uh, uh, Ajamu, is the successful counteroffensives uh, carried out by the Ukrainian military and uh, sort of how uh, different elements are reacting to that. Um, um, I'm looking here at a piece in the Washington Post where one U.S. official unnamed was quoted saying, the Russians are in trouble. The question will be how the Russians will react, but their weaknesses have been exposed and they don't have great manpower reserves or equipment reserves. And uh, and and I really feel like even though this just happened, there's already a kind of triumphalism that seems to have set in in the U.S. and the West, where basically it feels like we see uh, certainly sort of the mainstream corporate media and I think also elements of uh, the government sort of um, preemptively or maybe prematurely dancing on the Russian military grave. And I mean, this is interesting for a couple of reasons, because if, if, if folks have been paying attention I'm sure they've seen and we've certainly commented on the show about how in the U.S. and the West, we've been told that um, Ukraine has just been giving an absolute drubbing to Russia on the battlefield, uh, despite all uh, uh, evidence to the contrary. And here we have an actual kind of a military advance from Ukraine that seems to be being uh, uh, seized upon. And so, I mean, of course, only time will tell what will be the ultimate result of all this and how these uh, counteroffensive will overall impact um, the reality on the ground, Ajamu. But it does raise a question in my head that I think we've raised um, consistently here on the show, and we're not alone in that, in around the issue of uh, the media coverage of the war in Ukraine. And I'm just sort of wondering, you know, what is your estimation of how this issue is playing out already and in terms of how it factors into sort of more broadly about how this war in Ukraine has been portrayed to those of us here inside the Imperial Corps? You know, it's it's interesting. You laid out some of the obvious contradictions in terms of how the media has been covering this war. The war that the Western media uh, conveys to the public and the war that some of us are uh, following 
uh, on the ground in Ukraine uh, appear to be two different conflicts. As you said, according to the West, um, the Russians have been basically uh, being uh, destroyed by the uh, powerful and uh, heroic uh, Ukrainians. Uh, and so you wonder why this counteroffensive is being framed to be so uh, incredibly important if the Russians have already been uh, been almost defeated. And, and the point answer is that, of course, uh, the reality of what has happened on the ground militarily uh, in no way uh, is reflected in Western uh, coverage, uh, including this latest uh, counteroffensive. A counteroffensive that uh, has been promised uh, to uh, to to the West um, for the last few months that there was going to be this uh, counteroffensive that's going to push the Russians out of Donbas. Uh, it, they first uh, launched this about a, a little more than a week ago, almost two weeks ago, um, and that uh, major counteroffensive didn't it stalled out. Um, but the uh, one in the northern part of Donbass, <clears throat> outside of Donbass, uh, in which the Ukrainians basically uh, recouped uh, vast uh, territories that were largely uninhabited uh, and uh, uh, manned, if you will, by sparse uh, uh, forces from the from the militias, uh, has now been touted as some great victory. And the way it's been projected is quite clear, at least to me, that whatever the outcome of the so-called offensive was going to be, uh, it was going to be declared a, a victory. Uh, and because the, the media rollout was so uh, massive uh, and the lines uh, that, were, that were being pushed were so consistent. And again, those, those political lines are the... Uh, uh, overestimation of the military power of the Russians, uh, the ineptitude of the Russians, uh, the uh, um, uh, morale issues among Russian troops, uh, the uh, uh, weapon, the, the uh, lack of scarcity of weapons uh, uh, that the Russian military has, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and so this was a, uh, it was consistent. Um, it was has a, a political and ideological objective, uh, and that is uh, to um, uh, shore up support for the war in Ukraine at a point uh, where uh, that support was beginning to uh, falter somewhat in Europe and in the U.S. Uh, but, you know, once we delve into this beyond the surface, we find that the, objectively, in terms of military advances and impact on the uh, battle space in uh, Ukraine, uh, it, it was it was uh, of little importance. Yeah, you know, and Ajamu, I wonder what your thoughts are about how the U.S. media will handle uh, the resurgence of Russia when when it happens, because. 
obviously, you know, they're not reporting that uh, Russia's withdrawal of some forces in these regions was exactly that. It was a strategic withdrawal for whatever reasons Russia felt like they needed to do that. And I think NATO has a lot to do with that. And, and, I, and I think I'm also wondering what you feel about that. Like, in in the face of 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 Russia's withdrawal, partial withdrawal from some of these regions in the Ukraine, what does that signal to NATO? Uh, which NATO was the reason this this all started in the first place. This this is their you know the U.S. the EU's and NATO's proxy war. But but when the Russian forces uh, do recoup, because it's not as if there are no Russian reserves, I'm not sure where uh, the U.S. Uh, State Department, Department of Defense media is getting this idea that Russia doesn't have uh, reserves uh, in their military. There, there are millions of Russians, uh, you know, waiting to be deployed because the full Russian military has not been deployed. How do you think that is going to play? Uh, when that resurgence happens, um, which I, I think it undoubtedly will, in the U.S. and Western media that is already, as Sean pointed out, is, you know, calling for a, a victory in, in Ukraine right now. Well, it, it will be uh, covered in the way that the, it's been covered in the past, and that is uh, beyond the uh, distortions that have, been, that have been conveyed, beyond the distortions that have been conveyed. Uh, the other, the other strategy is to ignore, and so uh, you know when when this is reversed, and it will be reversed. And also, it's important to to keep in mind um, that this is this is a, a a conflict, a war, and in war, no one side uh, experiences consistent uh, victories, if you will. There's, there's victories that will uh, uh, occur. In various battles, so this uh, advance that was made uh, by the Ukrainians again had a more political uh, objective than anything else. I, I will refer to, for example, uh, to to make this point. Uh, those of us who live through and remember or remember and read about the Vietnam conflict and the the offense, the offensive, it really turned the tables in terms of of civilian support or popular support for the uh, for the war being waged by the U.S. was uh, an event, uh, an offensive uh, called Tent. Um, this was a, a major battle uh, launched by the North Vietnamese, uh, in which they temporarily took cities across Vietnam, um, and it was a, a um, an offensive that uh, demonstrated that uh, while the Johnson Johnson administration was suggesting that um, the Vietnamese were defeated, they indicated not only were they defeated, but they had a significant uh, military power uh, to be able to launch that kind of offensive. Now, objectively, the military objectives uh, were not really realized. Because the military objective was to spark uh, uh, a certain local rebellion and to basically topple the, the government of South Vietnam. Well, that didn't happen. But politically, it turned the tide ideologically. It turned the tide in terms of, of public support. So these wars uh, that are being waged are not just uh, wars that, are, that have military uh, components only, but they have ideological and political components. 
So this this media uh, blitz that we see happening right now, you know, is 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 part of the of the plan. But the the reality of what is happening in Ukraine is that ultimately there's going to have to be a political settlement settlement of this, and when that happens, the Ukrainians are going to be at a very uh, a precarious uh, place because their ability to be able to negotiate something that will uh, preserve some element of their national state uh, will will be seriously uh, undermined because they are going to lose this military conflict. That's objectively uh, quite obvious. So it's really the, the strategy being pushed uh, by the U.S. Uh, makes no sense on one level uh, because, you know, as you said in your question, Jackie, the only one-fifth of the uh, potential military capabilities of the Russians have been deployed in, in Ukraine. If this is expanded and they feel compelled to commit more resources, uh, then it's going to be over, basically. Yeah, and, and a part of all of this, of the um, sort of media distortion of uh, the war in Ukraine, Ajamu, and the whole propaganda aspect of it, has been the celebritization of Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. And uh, we, we've talked about this a decent bit on the show. And because and, and, and to me, I mean, at least in my lifetime, it feels unprecedented to, to see this um, sort of thing. I mean, definitely, uh, you know, the the, uh, pr- uh, you know, supposed enemies of the U.S. government, not, you know, not our enemies, but but theirs. You know, you know, you would never see them at this level of prominence. But even that aspect continues as Zelensky is slated to um, head up the upcoming uh, conference of the National Defense Industrial Association or the NDIA. Now, this will take place uh, on September 21st. And uh, Zelensky is set to appear virtually uh, Alex, Alexei Reznikov, who's Ukraine's Minister of Defense, is also slated to speak on that day. Those of you who have been uh, following uh, the Ukraine issue closely might be familiar with his name. Now, who's in uh, the NDIA? Uh, this is basically um, a group of uh, defense industry corporations, and it includes Lockheed Martin, General Dynamics, and Raytheon, you know what I mean? And so it, it just seems pretty transparent that uh, Zelensky is going to take this opportunity to ask for even more weapons to be uh, uh, sent to Ukraine to, to fight this conflict. And, you know, given these recent developments with these counteroffensive, I mean, it I mean, not that I think they would have uh, turned him down to begin with. But I mean, who knows what what this uh, contribution may look like now? And I feel like that's just such a glaring example of, of, of uh, one of the many issues with this conflict, uh, Ajamu, because I mean, not only has this. Uh, you know, a president been made into, you know, a, a figure of interest, almost like a human interest um, figure in and of himself in the United States, but also the ability to just go before these defense, uh, these corporate defense giants, these war profiteers is what they are. We can just call them what they are. And to just sort of blatantly do this, I think just says a lot about not only the reality of the conflict itself, but what it is that, uh, you know, the U.S. and the West are really after that they will clearly platform Zelensky in this way. You know what I mean? Exactly. It's, it's really quite, quite absurd. Uh, that not only would they promote him in that way, but if I'm not mistaken, and perhaps your your listeners can can correct me, but September 21st, I think, is the International Day of Peace. 
and so if that's the case for this this uh, propagandist, and that's what he is to be touted out there uh, to push uh, to 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 rationalize and justify continued war in Ukraine, uh, war that has had an impact on populations uh, globally. Is 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 not only obscene, but it it uh, reconfirms uh, the the complete uh, uh, absence of any real concern that Europeans uh, in the U.S. have for the people of the world uh, and their plight, uh, and any commitment that they pretend to have uh, as it relates to uh, to peace, uh, human rights. Indeed, just basic human decency. But these folks are committed uh, to using a military first strategy to maintain their, their dominance, and they really don't care what anybody says about that. So it is it's really, it's really quite troubling that they can do this and feel compelled, feel that they can wait with it. Um, and it's something that we've got to really point out. Real quickly, too. This support for Ukraine is is is, is has been has been given a, a boost uh, with this uh, counteroffensive. In fact, the Biden administration is pushing that an additional thirteen billion dollars be included in the spending authorization act to keep the government going. Uh, they want to sneak this in uh, to that act, and if they do that, Sean and and. And, and Jackie, it will bring up it will bring U.S. support for for Ukraine up to sixty nine billion dollars just in the last six months. This is this is unbelievable. Definitely. We're going to move to our first break of the hour on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are now open 202-521-1320. That's two. 0252-1320. Myself and Jackie Lukeman continue to be joined by Ajamu Baraka. And Ajamu, before we went to break, we were talking about um, the role of uh, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky in the imperialist propaganda uh, concerning, of course, the war in Ukraine that uh, continues on. And another thing that I was thinking about over the break, I don't even think we mentioned this, but about a week ago, Volodymyr Zelensky um, actually opened the New York Stock Exchange and was, you know, literally sort of encouraging uh, a foreign capital to, uh, you know, come and get their slice of the country. You know what I mean? And I'm looking for a, a, a quote here. I'm looking at this piece. Oh, here's one that he wrote at, at the time. Oh, this also came, I should mention, um, uh, when he wrote in op-ed, I believe it was for the Wall Street Journal. Yeah, he did. And it's, you know, not 
a coincidence, of course, uh, of the timing that all of this uh, in terms of what we're seeing. And so the reason why I bring this up, Ajamu, is because the sort of direct role of capital in the war in Ukraine has not really been commented on extensively, except for uh, in the alternative media. And uh, during that speech at the uh, New York Stock Exchange, uh, Zelensky said that he wanted to give Wall Street, quote, a chance for you to invest now in projects worth hundreds of billions of dollars. So just, you know, clearly trying to make his, uh, 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 you know, a country sort of, uh, you know, uh, attractive to Wall Street in this way, like literally just opening up the floodgates for these jackals to come in and ravage the country. But see, this is an aspect of things that isn't really considered here in the United States. And, and certainly it was reported on, but the, the context of it and the impact, you know, I think are often actually uh, uh, left off. You know what I mean? So what do you make of this uh, sort of uh, aspect of things, we talk about the interest of capital in the war in Ukraine, just like it would have really in, in any war, and how that aspect of things is really just completely left out of the narrative that we get here in the U.S. and the West. Of course, yes. I mean, this is what other motivation would be for the U.S. Uh, to uh, to manufacture this crisis, uh, this war uh, in Ukraine. Uh, going back to the decision to uh, move to uh, uh, execute a coup uh, when uh, President uh, Yanukovych uh, decided that the, the Ukraine would remain connected to uh, to 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 the Russian Federation, uh, and they rejected the deal that was being offered to them by the European Union, which a deal that was going to further uh, reduce their ability to exercise for a national sovereignty. When that decision was made, uh, that's when the U.S., uh, with the uh, uh, minor help of the European uh, nations, uh, executed the uh, the events in Ukraine that led to uh, Yanukovych leaving the country and uh, the transfer of power to a a coup government uh, in which uh, four of the major uh, ministries were headed up by open. Uh, clearly acknowledged uh, neo-fascists. Uh, and that was the first phase of the conflict because from that point when the people in eastern uh, Ukraine rejected the legitimacy of the coup government, uh, the coup government responded by basically attacking their own people. This was the first phase of the conflict. The second phase of the conflict was the uh, sort of low-intensity, if you will, uh, element uh, that still ended up with 14,000 people uh, dying between uh, 2014 and uh, 2022. Uh, and then the third phase of the conflict uh, initially started uh, around February 16th, February 17th, uh, when the 150,000 uh, Ukrainian uh, troops um, uh, lined up on the so-called contact line between Ukraine proper and, and uh, Donbass and began to probe uh, in, in preparation for their uh, invasion. That was preempted, uh, undermined by the decision by the Russian Federation to go into uh, to provide support for Donbass on February 24th. So this has been a long-standing uh, 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 plan, uh, and 
the, the, the main motivation of that was to do two things. One, it was to basically undermine or to disarticulate the Russian economy from the German economy. They, they needed an excuse to uh, kill Nord Stream 2. Uh, secondly, it was to uh, weaken uh, Russia, to undermine its ability to be an effective partner with uh, with the Chinese. Uh, and third, all of that was meant to uh, uh, tighten the U.S. Uh, grip of, of capital, uh, U.S. capital uh, hegemony uh, in Western Europe, and to try to delay the inevitable uh, with the consolidation of the Eurasia economic activity being led by Russia uh, and China. So it's all about the advancement of this colonial uh, capitalist system. And the fact that uh, those motivations aren't really talked about is, is quite understandable. Uh, like they won't talk about the fact that the, the driving force of the of U.S. policies are some of the most uh, aggressive elements of the ruling class, of the military industrial class, and the energy uh, companies, along with finance capital. So this is all about uh, the material interest uh, of capital. So all of this moral uh, BS, uh, you know, is just part of the attempts to try to rationalize support for this. But it's all about the advancement of the interest of this vicious, aggressive uh, capitalist uh, class that still are trying to desperately hold on uh, to global uh, global hegemony. Definitely. We have a caller on the line here. Erica, tell us what's on your mind. Peace, peace, comrades. I um, I was calling because uh, all day, well, actually since yesterday, MSNBC has been reporting that the Ukrainian military has taken back over their um, land. They have reclaimed land. And it seems like, especially on shows like Morning Joe, um, what they're trying to do is justify the amount of money that has been spent thus far. I just wanted to know any thoughts and opinions on that, um, only because the recent assassination, uh, was a, attempted assassination um, of uh, the vice president, Argentina, being linked uh, to the Azov Battalion in similar ways that we they were linking the Buffalo shooter to Azov. They, they have the same exact uh, Black Sun Nazi symbol. Um, and then I remember, as Jango was talking about, the beginning of this iteration of, I guess, the war. In February, as that was all starting, there were neo-Nazi elements from the U.S., Australia, and Brazil flying into Poland. So I just wanted some thoughts about maybe the interconnection of uh, this ongoing um, fascist structure that's being ignored, especially as our tax dollars are paying for it. I think it's almost said almost like $36 billion maybe. Um, and Jackson has no water. New York is having a water crisis. Baltimore City is having a water crisis, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but yeah, that's, that's just my thoughts. I want to know what you guys thought about that. And thanks for taking my call. Well, thank you for calling, Eric. Always good to hear from you. Hope to hear from you again soon. One of our uh, most committed listeners. And uh, you mentioned the Azov Battalion. This is an aside, but, uh, you know, we were doing a segment earlier with uh, Mark Sloboda about, uh, you know, sort of a more detailed uh, sort of uh, segment around the specifics of the Ukrainian counteroffensive. And I was looking at this piece in Politico and uh, the picture shows this one dude very clearly with the right sector patch on his uniform. And so, even several months into it, it seems like we can't get a, a, a story without um, these quote-unquote ultra-nationalists and neo-Nazi and other far-right groups. But uh, Ajamu Baraka. 
Well, it's important that we, uh, especially for for your listeners, uh, and especially for those of us who are part of the uh, African or African-American uh, community in the U.S., uh, and part of the uh, colonized working classes globally, that we uh, remind ourselves of the myth that uh, the bourgeoisie will, will go in maintaining their uh, their particular interests. And, you know, and we, 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 we remind ourselves because we know that, that uh, uh, political discourse in the U.S. is such where we're supposed to be focused on the uh, so-called neo-fascist threat coming from the uh, Trumpian forces. And these are real threats, no question about that. But that focus on the uh, neo-fascist uh, outside of the state uh, who don't have state power uh, helps us helps to distort the the objective reality of neo-fascist forces that control the state. That uh, helps us helps to confuse the fact of the objective fact that neoliberalism is a right-wing fascist ideology, um, and that these forces are prepared to. Uh, in, in, in national settings where they need to, they are prepared to uh, go into coalitions to support uh, far-right uh, elements uh, like in places like Ukraine. It's every, it was understood up until the conflict this year that you have these uh, neo-fascist elements in Ukrainian society, the, the ultra-nationalists, uh, who had uh, neo-fascist uh, 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 leanings and the uh, straight-up literal neo-fascist in that country. Um, and there were even reports that came out in the Western press that uh, uh, decried the fact that those elements were pr- playing a role in Ukrainian society. Well, once the conflict uh, went into this third phase, um, then there was uh, an attempt to either erase or rehabilitate those neo-fascist uh, elements. Uh, and as Erica reminded us, we see that uh, uh, the conflict in Ukraine has uh, helped to galvanize neo-fascists around the world uh, who identify with the uh, project in Ukraine. Um, and, and these individuals, some of them proudly uh, uh, demonstrate their commitment to the cause by engaging in the kind of violence we saw uh, unfold uh, in this country and the attempted uh, assassination in Argentina. Uh, these are some very dangerous uh, elements, uh, but yet the uh, U.S. and Western Europeans will uh, whitewash these elements uh, as long as they can use them uh, in their short-term uh, economic and political objectives. But we can't allow ourselves to be confused by uh, by this element. We can't allow ourselves to be confused by the role of this uh, Z- Zelensky uh, criminal, uh, who is the new spokesperson for uh, global uh, neo-fascism. You know, we talked about the fact that uh, Donald Trump was an a ineffective spokesperson for, uh, for neo-fascism, that there would be someone much more slicker uh, who would uh, be a, a greater threat uh, than a Donald Trump and with his clownism. Well, we have that person in the person of of, of Zelensky, uh, who is, along with Joe Biden, the two spokespersons for the uh, White Lives Matter more movement, uh, the neo-fascists uh, who are fighting for the 
uh, for the continued hegemony of Europe, uh, where Zelensky talks about Europeanness and the need to defend the West, uh, who would talk about the, the war in Ukraine as being the most uh, uh, horrific event to happen since 1945. Um, you know, ignoring Vietnam, ignoring uh, the invasion of Iraq, ignoring the slaughter of, of, of communists and socialists in Indonesia in 1965, ignoring Yemen, and the, and the, the list goes on. But Eurocentrism has been uh, normalized uh, by this uh, racist criminal. Uh, along with his running uh, partner, Joe Biden, who proudly proclaims himself uh, an Atlanticist, which is a Cold War uh, word for a, a, a white supremacist, and proudly proclaims himself as a Zionist. Again, a right-wing racist ideology. So we have to be clear about this, because we see that in the in the U.S. and in Western Europe, the left has clearly um, uh, aligned itself with the interests of their, of their bourgeoisie. Uh, they, have, they are putting in place the foundation for a cross-class white supremacist movement. Uh, they, will have, they will be the foundation for a new openly fascist movement. Right now, that's being blocked because, you know, we got to remember the, the capitalists, they don't want Fascism. Fascism is a is a, a capitalist reform. No question about that. But they don't want to have to have to subordinate their interests to the uh, political direction of a of a radical petty bourgeoisie that is is more committed to national capital than international capital. So we've got to be clear about that because we have to be we have to understand what our political responsibilities are. We've got to wake our people up and prepare our people for the war that's being waged against the working class, against Africans, against the colonized. We can't have any illusions about about what is happening, what the meaning of Ukraine is, and all of these other issues that impact our lives negatively. We've got to be completely clear about our interests and our standing and our world perspectives. And, you know, John, it's it's difficult, I think, for average folks who, you know, are not, uh, you know, radical revolutionary socialists who understand the importance of history and particularly the, the, the history of imperialism and that the importance of that history to this very moment. Because, you know, folks in the chat, shout out to folks in the By Any Means Necessary chat. Noah 29 pointed out that anti-fascist monuments are being destroyed in Eastern Europe right now. And it started in Yugoslavia in 1991. Nawadi pointed out that Lithuania just got rid of their last uh, anti-fascist monument. And Ricky Ryan pointed out that the 90s is so understudied for this reason. Simply asking what happened to Yugoslavia really reveals the cracks. And I feel like the connection that she raised in her call to this attempted assassination of uh, Christina Kirchner is important because there was a time when I thought that most people in this country knew that Argentina was like a haven for Nazis. The Nazis who escaped World War II were given, uh, you know, aid and comfort and really like literally living in comfort in Argentina with the help of former Argentinian uh, President Juan Perón after World War II, almost up to 5,000 uh, uh, Nazis relocated. That's the word that History.com uses, relocated. They escaped to Argentina. 
there was a time when when I thought that people generally knew that. But but what what happened to the consciousness of this country where we we forget that connection that Argentina has to fascism that is connected to the Nazis in World War Two? Well, part of what happened, Jackie, is that the the people didn't forget, but it's been confused as the country has moved to the right ideologically. And even with that movement to the right, it, of course, so-called left forces have moved to the right. So the kind of critical consciousness that you're referring to that uh, was, was a little bit more uh, prevalent a few decades ago uh, has been reduced to the margins. Uh, I mean, look at not only the the inability to make the connections with with the rise of, of the activity of the right uh, in Ukraine and and the, and the elements that are, are motivated by Ukraine and by uh, neo fascism in general. Uh, look at the stance that the elements of the left would take on uh, national liberation movements in places like uh, Bolivia. Um, uh, Venezuela, uh, the continuation of the, uh, the uh, of the Cuban revolutionary process, uh, Nicaragua. Uh, I mean, the the left has, has moved to the right, and because of that, the, these kinds of discussions aren't really taking place uh, as as they should. Uh, we're not able then to win more people over to a a more radical stance, a more progressive stance, if you will. So. You know, this is this is the this is the ideological terrain that we are forced to operate in uh, at this point in history. It is a, it's a very dangerous one because uh, the the those elements that should be in alignment with us uh, have succumbed to uh, the most reactionary elements or reactionary uh, characteristics of bourgeois nationalism. Uh, and sentimentality when it comes to uh, to the U.S. Um, and 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 others have uh, succumbed to uh, Eurocentrism, uh, in which they are unwillingly, unwill- they are unconscious supporters of the, of, of white supremacy. When you begin to mystify the role of of the of the West, uh, when you see the West as representing the apex. Of, of 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 human development, uh, when you uh, don't challenge the legitimacy of the of the capitalist order, I mean these are the kinds of of, of ideological uh, developments that are un- helping to undermine and disarm our political opposition, and therefore we have to be clear that is those love forces that are still. Uh, trying to maintain some some political integrity, we can no longer sugarcoat uh, discussions. We've got to be crystal clear in terms of our analysis and what we are advocating for and for going forward. The vision that we have, and we've got to be straight up to say, if without a socialist revolution, without the construction of socialism uh, globally. Um, global humanity is not going to be able to survive on this planet. And we say that with confidence because we say that this political objective uh, represents a superior uh, morality, if you will, a superior ethics. It, it, it's, it's the only way that we're going to be able to produce human beings 
um, that uh, can transcend the kind of, of degradation that's become normalized in the U.S., where you have people who go out and murder people mindlessly. You know, we think that if we're going to be able to survive on this planet, if we're going to be able to survive as a species, if you will, we've got to move away from the barbarity uh, of this capitalist order and attempt to build something new. And that something new has to be based uh, on the foundation of socialism. We've got to be clear about that. Definitely. We're going to move to another quick break on that note here on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We'll be right back. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Sean Blackman, here with Jackie Lukeman. And as always, we are your guide for connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. My dear friends, phone lines are still open. 202-521-1320. That's two. 02-521-1320. I am here. Jackie Lukeman is here. Ajamu Baraka is here. And of course, uh, Ajamu, you know, this uh, this this war in Ukraine uh, following uh, Russia's invasion in February, I mean, there's, I really do feel like there's basically no corner of uh, global politics that haven't somehow been uh, uh, touched by this. And um, I think it's noteworthy um, the fact that uh, the Chinese and Russian presidents, uh, Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin, respectively, um, are set to conduct their first in-person meeting uh, since uh, the war in Ukraine began. And I feel like China uh, perhaps was the, the, the first country uh, to sort of, you know, make it clear that they intended to retain their relationship with Russia as it is, even while remaining basically neutral on the issue of uh, the war itself. You know what I mean? And um, I think namely this will be taking place at the Shanghai Cooperation Organization Summit in uh, Uzbekistan and things like this. And this will also be Xi Jinping's first trip outside of China since the beginning of of uh, COVID-19 and, and all these sorts of things. And so, you know, I'm just sort of broadly curious, you know, Ajamu, what do you make of these kinds of dynamics? Because while I mean, the relationship between Russia and China in this juncture seems to be uh, one of the key dynamics that people are looking towards. But I feel like we can look all over the earth and see how, you know, different governments and different regions and even different uh, uh, movements um, inside these different countries are sort of responding to this. I mean, I just thought about, you know, the protests we've been seeing in Europe, in uh, Prague and Germany uh, uh, because of the a rise in energy cost as they head towards what I think will be a particularly cold winter directly related to their government's involvement in this conflict. And so, I mean, in the broadest sense of job, I mean, how do you sort of, uh, what is your estimation of, you know, how these different geopolitical dynamics are sort of shaking out um, in this moment that at the end of the day um, are operating as a direct response of U.S. imperialism instigating this war in Ukraine, well, at the same time, it, it, it really seems like a lot of these countries um, are starting to very openly look for 
um, you know, alternatives to a U.S. hegemony and the hegemony of the dollar. And the funny thing about that, and this is the last thing I'll say, is that, you know, a lot of these countries would absolutely love a, a partnership with the United States that was respectful and mutually beneficial and things like that. And I tend to think that the reason why uh, certain governments may be looking more favorably towards their relationships with um, uh, uh, Russia and China is because of that very kind of thing. There doesn't seem to be a, you know, an ulterior motive or, you know, a plan for takeover, basically, like we see from the U.S. and the West. But I've said enough, Bajamu, but uh, just generally curious about how that aspect of this conflict is sort of striking you at this moment. Well, you know, one of the things that I think the foreign policy uh, decision makers in the U.S. were counting on for some strange reason was uh, the cooperation of uh, China. Uh, when they imposed the illegal sanctions on Russia, um, they they understood that um, if the Chinese provided a uh, an outlet uh, for Russian commerce, uh, um, uh, primarily in terms of the oil and gas, that that would uh, pose a serious uh, threat to the uh, sanctions that they were attempting to impose on on Russia. Well, that's exactly what didn't happen. The Chinese, uh, while they did not, uh, 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 well, I mean, you, you, know, you said that the Chinese didn't really take a stance or remain relatively neutral. Uh, that's, that's true to a certain extent in, in, in terms of not condemning uh, the uh, Russians, but they did, uh, they were quite clear that the, uh, they understood that uh, the Russians were put into in a, a, a bind. Uh, that uh, the provocations from from NATO were such that uh, it was, they said in so many ways, it's understandable that the uh, Russians uh, believe that their national security was threatened uh, by the de facto incorporation uh, of of Ukraine into into NATO and the subsequent proxy war that was unleashed. Uh, so, you know, by uh, not uh, joining the West. Uh, by uh, accelerating uh, trade relations between themselves and the Russians, uh, it gave uh, Russia a, an outlet, uh, an ability to, to survive uh, these, these sanctions. Uh, and so the relationship uh, that the, the U.S. wanted to undermine uh, uh, as a consequence of their own ineptitude, uh, they have now helped to solidify that, that is the relationship between the Russian, the Russian Federation and, and, and China. Um, and other nations uh, are, are moving in a similar direction. They recognize that, uh, that uh, the power uh, uh, base has, is shifting to the east, um, and uh, we see the consequence of that. The U.S.'s inability to, uh, to get its vassal nations even go along with them uh, to condemn uh, Russia on the various, uh, you know, international forums, uh, for example. Uh, so, you know, this is a very important historical moment uh, because what we see with this solidification of the relationship um, is a consequence of flawed um, of policies on the part of the U.S. that, that, that has helped to accelerate uh, its decline. There's two major decisions, in my opinion, that occurred uh, over the last two decades of this 21st century to help to um, uh, to accelerate the decline of of, of the U.S. Uh, that was the the disastrous decision to go into uh, uh, Iraq 
and attempt to try to execute two uh, simultaneous uh, major conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan, um, and this Ukrainian uh, uh, situation that they manufactured that really exposed the real limitations of, of U.S. imperial imperial power. Um, and they're not going to be able to recover. As you alluded to in your question, you see that the cracks are already developing among the European public regarding uh, the consequences of of the sanctions and how those sanctions that were imposed impose on Russia uh, has uh, uh, backfired uh, and undermined uh, uh, living conditions uh, and standards of living in, in Europe and in the U.S. The difference between the U.S. Uh, and, and, and Europe right now is that uh, in the U.S., uh, the, the progressive movement and, and even most of the liberal left um, is in alignment with uh, the neoliberal wing of the Democratic Party. And so they have disarmed themselves uh, and have remained silent, uh, even as the plight of the working class uh, has uh, has intensified in terms of is, is the negative consequence of this conflict. But we see that in Europe, uh, opposition is picking up. So, you know, this all of this, it, it points to this, this shift in global power. Um, and the U.S. seems to be completely unable to not only understand uh, the, the, the shift, but doing policies that are, that are precipitating uh, this shift, accelerating this shift away from them, exposing uh, the limitations of what the world is moving to uh, multipolarity. There's no question about that. It will still be a capitalist multipolarity, but the U.S. has got to understand that it can no longer uh, attempt to uh, realize full spectrum dominance. That 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 doctrine is now basically uh, uh, anachronistic, and they've got to move in a different direction. But they, because of the psychopathology of white supremacy, they cannot cognitively understand what is really happening and shift their strategy. Instead, they are relying on a military first strategy. Uh, that is is no longer uh, viable, uh, and they're going to see that, and I already seen it in Ukraine. Uh, they've seen it with the disastrous policies not to try to put back in place uh, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action or the Iran deal, if you will. Uh, they're seen it with uh, with the uh, expanded uh, resource public resources being used. Um, uh, to to show up the U.S. military to the detriment of the plight of the working class. Sooner or later, there's going to be a social consequence for that. Uh, and so the, the, the policies that they're pursuing um, are such where they're not going to be able to in any way address or attempt to address the internal contradictions of the decline of the capitalist system and the decline of their global capitalist power. So it, it's making the situation very, very precarious, very, very dangerous uh, because these folks, uh, are not, they don't have any kind of strategy to try to reverse the, their own decline. And it seems like there are elements in the foreign policy uh, uh, community that are committed to either U.S., continue U.S. dominance, or they blow up the entire world. And that's very, very uh, troubling.
Yeah, to say the very least. We're going to squeeze in another caller here. Keith, tell us what's on your mind. Great show and uh, host as usual and guest. I just have a quick question. I, I, I guess I should be, um, you know, not so naive, but I was thinking NATO apparently, some, some argue, is really a U.S. creation. And these countries are basically vassal states. But could they be as sinister as to take advantage of the downturn in the economy? Heat and eat are the only choices they have this winter. And they're saying, uh, some economists are saying they're going to swoop down and buy up the energy uh, market that is no longer going to be there because they're going out of business, gobble up anything that uh, didn't go down after the crisis, and end up turning the European countries more into vassal states than they were, but from an economic perspective. I mean, I don't... Could they really be that sinister? Do their own allies in like that? Yeah, well, good question, Keith. Appreciate you calling in. Hope to hear from you again soon. Uh, Ajamu, your thoughts? Uh, yes, they can. Basically, the, because the European leadership is so is so weak, and and, and uh, uh, they have they are pursuing strategies being led by the U.S. that's undermining their own objective economic interests, and that's part of the the, the anger that the European public is starting to articulate, uh, and elements of the European ruling class that uh, their their political leadership, their the political class, that are making decisions that are in alignment with U.S. interests, but not the interests of the Germans or the French, um, et cetera, et cetera. So, yes, they will. They have put the they have put Europeans in a place where they're going to basically uh, uh, not have uh, adequate uh, energy sources this winter. Um, and they, they did that because uh, what U.S. capital wants to do is to try to maintain their grip on the 500 million member uh, European Economic Union, basically. So yes, they're just that cynical because that's how capitalism operates. The cynicism is reflected in the fact that they created this war uh, with uh, with Russia and the fact that they are executing wars across the planet to maintain their hegemony, that they are imposing illegal crippling sanctions against almost 40 nations around the world. That's what these criminals do. It is a criminal, uh, parasitic, uh, uh, global uh, 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 system that has to be destroyed or we all are going to go down with these criminals. Absolutely. Jackie Lugman, any thoughts in our last two minutes? Yeah, I mean, we see the response from the people uh, in European nations, and we see that the people are catching on. They've they've caught on. I think enough people have caught on that this whole Ukraine gambit is a lie. As people in uh, Germany and uh, Prague have come out protesting the energy crises in their countries. Funny how just a few weeks ago, Sean, we were talking about people protesting energy crises in countries like Haiti and and you know other quote unquote developing countries. But now this is happening in European nations and people are not having it, the people are clearly saying we're not going to freeze so that Ukraine can win. Absolutely. Well, we thank you so much, Ajambu, for joining us today. We're going to leave it there for today here on By Enemies Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C., and we will see you next time. Peace. By any means necessary.